This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We're in the middle of a series called Talking About Talk. Each episode, we're exploring the need for and, and role of good conversation and good dialogue in lots of aspects of our lives. For today's discussion, we're really excited to, to turn our our eye toward conversations and dialogue within the church. And we have a guest. This is so exciting. But before we dig into all of that, Hannah, I, I was curious, you grew up in the church, right? And in, in the Christian faith? I did. I did from earliest memories. Yes. I don't remember a time not being in church. Let me put it that way. So all of the 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 lingo and the jargon, we talked about lingo and, and jargon last in our last episode. All of that was very natural for you then, right? Because it you grew it up was. in it. It was. So it became part of my lexicon mm-hmm. from childhood. And I don't think I it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that not everyone knows the word sanctification. Right. It's not necessarily language that exists or makes sense outside of church community. Well, I did not grow up in the church. And so when I became a Christian, um, late high school, and then especially moving into college, I became more immersed in the, the Christian culture. There were all these phrases and terms, and I for many conversations, I was like, I don't know what people are talking about. There were so many interesting, um, just common words and phrases that were tagged on to conversations and tagged on to comments. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, these are just these things that we slip into. And um, it's almost like I heard them, but I've never really adopted them. So I sort of feel like I'm a failure in Christianese. <laughs> oh, well, I think we all could do well to fail in Christianese. Because I'm sure I have my fair share, but there's some things I'm like, I of, can't do it. <laughs> it does kind of cloud even the conversations we have. Uh-huh. Um, I realized when I was oh, probably 24, 25, I was in a church and Nathan and I were tasked with teaching a five-year-old children's church, which mm-hmm. probably was the best thing that ever happened for our faith. And our spiritual growth, because you're working with these children who, you know, they do have a limited lexicon and you're in context of faith and, you know, teaching them the Bible and teaching them about God. And you can't use all the words that you've come to rely on. And Mm -hmm. you have to explain these concepts in ways that use the language they know at five years old. And so that was really a healthy exercise for us to come into our own faith and to kind of step away from the jargon. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing I realized about 
conversation growing up in the church, we do have this Christianese and jargon that we rely on. But I can't say that I remember the church being a place of dialogue or necessarily robust conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the times the way church teaching happens is you have someone at the front talking to you. So it's not really, um, there's not a liturgy or a practice of give and take. You Mm. just go in, you receive, Mm -hmm. and then you leave. And so I find it kind of interesting how um, church spaces maybe need a little help. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the 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 practice of conversation, um, because I when I became a young adult and I was getting out on my own, I found that conversation was happening in a lot of other spaces, um, and not necessarily with Christian ethics or Christian principles behind it. But people were talking and dialoguing mm-hmm. about ideas in ways that I didn't necessarily find it happening in the church. Well, just like we talked about in previous episodes where um, Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice had talked about how we need to engage these things and become better at them when we practice them. So this is what we are going to do today is to get some discussion going. And in a way, we're going to be practicing and learning how can we become better at dialoguing with each other, especially around faith topics or around um, our circles that are religious and faith-based, and yet we need to be out in the community as well. So that overlap. And to do that, we are so pleased to have a guest today. We have Chris Smith. He is founding editor of the Englewood Review of Books. He's an author. Um, One book he co-authored, it's titled Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And he has a book coming out in 2019. And the title of that is How the Body of Christ Talks, Recovering the Practice of Conversation in the Church. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Persuasion. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here and to talk. (laughs) Talk about talking. Yes, this is what we're here for. I really wanted to call my book what I talk about when I talk about talking, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> didn't like that so much. Oh, well, we can we can give it that shorthand. I like it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, we're we're really pleased to have you here. It, it seems like this is something that you have been thinking of and putting your 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 hands to. This has become your work. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your work and your thoughts and how you have this passion for how people are communicating with each other. Sure. I mean, I think that I've been interested in conversation for a long time, uh, but about uh, 15 years ago, I came to the church uh, where I am now, Englewood Christian Church, uh, and I stumbled into something here um, that was very different uh, for the reasons that you described in your intro. Um, Englewood has a practice uh, for about 25 years. that started in the early 1990s. And in the early 1990s, Englewood was a fairly evangelically sort of church. Uh, And like a lot of churches in that time, it had a Sunday evening service. And the Sunday evening service uh, was dying off. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, Englewood was kind of weird, I guess. Uh, And they realized that we couldn't continue to do the same thing that we'd always done, kind of a light version of the Sunday morning service. Uh, But they didn't want didn't want to give up being together on Sunday nights. 
Uh, so somebody suggested, had the idea, why don't we get together in one of our multipurpose rooms and just circle up chairs and have a conversation together. Uh, and that's as odd an idea as that was, uh, has really over the last 25 years uh, become very much the hub of our life together. Um, and, but, but uh, for reasons that you kind of touched on in your intro, uh, it was very difficult uh, for us at first. Uh, one of the first questions that we, uh, we talked about, and in this kind of bubbled up from, uh, nobody is exactly sure where, a Sunday school class or a sermon or something, but was the question of what is the gospel? Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, being folks that w- at least had some tenuous relationship to evangelicalism, uh, this was a very uh, uh, central question to our identity uh, and also um, a, very, a very volatile one because people had strongly, strongly held convictions about that. And, and it was a real big mess uh, mm. uh, that, I mean, people were yelling at each other. Uh, Just in trying to get this definition of the gospel. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what, and, wow, wow. And um, some people left the church. Uh, some people stayed part of the church, but steered clear of Sunday nights. Um, so it was just a big mess. We, I mean, we very rapidly realized uh, that we had been formed by a culture, a culture that you described so well, uh, that really doesn't know how to talk together. And what we were finding uh, was that in wrestling with questions like what is the gospel? And then probably the first five to seven years of our conversation, maybe even a little bit more than that, uh, were, were wrestling with the words that we used. And we found we're finding in that early phase of our conversation, we were finding that though we all used similar words, kind of churchy words, uh, we were kind of all over the map in what we meant by that, by those words. Um, and that uh, certainly uh, fueled uh, the conflict um, in our conversations. Um, so we basically spent that first, the better part of a decade, uh, working through questions like, what is the gospel? What is salvation? What is the kingdom of God? What is scripture and how do we read it? Uh, uh, what, uh, uh, what is the church and why, why does the church matter? Um, all, all of these sorts of questions. But the crazy thing about it was, and this is, uh, I think this is really important uh, for others that might uh, be interested in our story. But the the crazy thing was that after talking about these questions for five, 10 years, whatever, we did, there wasn't a lot of transformation in what people thought. Uh, so we were still pretty diverse uh, in our convictions uh, and our understandings of things. But the what was particularly transformative was that through this practice of talking together, we were coming to know one another and to trust one another, uh, even when we didn't agree. And maybe that maybe there was a little bit of movement uh, in terms of uh, how things were understood. Uh, but but the biggest the biggest sort of transformation uh, was um, was relational. Um, that we were coming to know and to trust one another. And out of that trust, uh, uh, we were able to do a lot of stuff. I mean, oftentimes people uh, that have more of an activist bent uh, kind of look a little bit skeptically on the practice of conversation. uh, And um, you're just sitting there talking. (laughs) You need need to get up and do something, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, But 
But we were actually, I think, able to do things more effectively because we, we trusted one another. We knew one another. We actually had some sense of what a growing sense of, um, of what we should do together and, and maybe even a little bit of how we should do it or why we should do it. Uh, That's fascinating to me because I think so often when we're trying to create community, we either appeal to like um, definitions, creeds or covenants. And we say, well, we can be together because we have all agreed to this set of definitions. Right. Or you see people joining around shared work, like sure. shared sense of mission. So you can see an organization grow up around, we're going to uh, feed the poor in our city. So this is our mission. So we all pitch into this mission. And what you're describing, also, it, it seems to indicate that there is a part of forming community that must involve the sharing of oneself with the other members of the community. Like it can't Absolutely. just be these outside things that we all reach for and agree to. There has to be this bonding with each other that comes from self-revelation and the practice of conversation, really, which we've already established, you know, as we've talked through this series, that the goal of conversation is community. It is that revelation of oneself to another person through the use of words and language. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think that's, I would absolutely agree with that sort of definition of conversation. The the more that I've researched and the more that I've kind of dug into um, the practices so I've been fortunate over the last five years or so to uh, visit and to talk with probably at least a couple dozen congregations across North America uh, that have practices of conversation of some sort or another. Um, and uh, with with very few exceptions, uh, these practices of conversations conversation are fundamentally about knowing and being known. Um, that, that that that's what happens uh, in in the conversational space um, that we uh, come to know others and make ourselves available uh, to to be known and, and so so when I talk about conversation it's it's a lot more and it sounds like you've had uh, similar uh, reflections uh, from some of the other guests in the series already uh, but that uh, that conversation is fundamentally about presence. Uh, about about knowing and being known and being attentive uh, to another. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of background in communication theory about how the ways that we talk together is, is about so much more uh, than just the words we share, but it's our emotions, our body language, our posture, et cetera. When you've gone and, and met with these different churches and when you've, you've observed conversation among people of faith, are you, are you seeing that our ability to have conversation within church bodies is easier or harder? I don't know that it's any easier or any harder. I mean, I okay. our churches, is it just reflecting society? Yeah, yeah. I think our churches okay. by and large reflect uh, the very deeply fragmented uh, culture uh, mm-hmm. that we live within in the 21st century. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, um, but but this history, the history of fragmentation that has kind of led us to this point is pr- goes back at least as far as the beginning of the modern age, 400 or more years ago. Um, 
uh, and kind of uh, histories of of individualism, of mobility, of colonialism, um, all of these sorts of things have fragmented um, the ways that we we live together and deeply affected our capacity to talk with one another. And our churches, our churches are uh, our reflection of that. Now, what? But I do make the argument uh, in uh, in my forthcoming book uh, that. I think the churches are the place where we should be relearning how to talk to one another, uh, not as an end in itself, but uh, in that we could begin to talk well together in all the sorts of communities to which we belong, our homes, our workplaces, um, et cetera. But but I, I argue that the church is the place where we're learning to do this because we have practices, we have traditions of things like grace and forgiveness and reconciliation that I think will give us a little bit more capacity uh, for sticking with practices of conversation uh, in ways that we might not be able to do in the other communities to which we belong. So let me see if I'm hearing you right, Chris. The modern landscape is devastated when it comes to terms of conversation. But if there is a place of survival, it might be the church. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think (laughs) one of the things that's been really important uh, to me in reflecting on conversation uh, is looking at the human body uh, and also reflecting a bit on the nature of God as Trinity. Um, Our human bodies are basically a conversation. Uh, uh, Certainly, obviously, at the most rudimentary level, kind of the nervous system and the ways that uh, signals are sent back and forth from the brain to the parts of the body and the parts are, the body parts respond with pain, pleasure, fatigue, et cetera. But, but the parts of our body are intimately intertwined with one another. Uh, and as we were saying earlier, are, I argue, mutually present to one another. Uh, they, uh, to use a theological term that's often used of the Trinity, the parts of our body indwell each other. Um, A a hand is not just merely a hand, uh, but it's a a collection of of bones, of muscle, of cartilage, of skin. Um, And these parts are all uh, wound together uh, and they all work attentively with one another in conversation, basically. Um, And I, I believe that the conversational nature of our bodies is a reflection of who God is, who God is in the Trinity. Uh, we see in the scriptural story that uh, that the persons of the Trinity, as best we can understand them, uh, are mutually present to one another. Jesus says, for instance, I don't do anything but what I see the Father doing. Um, and we could draw the Spirit in, uh, into that uh, so, sort of conversational dynamics as well. And so I believe it's this conversational life uh, is the sort of flourishing, abundant life uh, for which we are created. Uh, but for reasons that uh, my co-author John Pattison and I explored in the Slow Church book, uh, the nature of modern culture is moving faster and faster and trying to discern what is expendable. Uh, and oftentimes what we've expended uh, in the modern age is, is relationship, is personal interaction, uh, we go to the grocery store, for instance, uh, and w- we don't have to even interact with a person as we check out. Uh, I mean, that's just kind of one of the ways. Sometimes that's awesome. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, mean, I do it too. I'm not, not, uh, 
uh, chastising uh, people. See, now I need to stop you here because every time I try to use the self-checkout lane, I end up interacting a lot with a person. I actually agree with that. I agree the same way. I'm always like, can I have help here? That's the dark side of of technology uh, as we were talking about. It's drawing us together. Um, But... But these long histories of fragmentation, uh, long histories of individualism particularly, um, blinds us to the realities of the ways that we are deeply and intimately connected uh, with other humans uh, and with God who uh, indwells creation. Um, and and conversation, I think, is the ways, at least for us here at Englewood, uh, for learning intentionally practicing conversation together for over 25 years now. Uh, we are starting to get a taste of the ways in which uh, we are intimately connected together uh, and we believe we're designed designed to be that way. I love that you use body imagery to describe conversation and to describe, you know, the body of Christ, because that is very scriptural um, language and a metaphor that I, is divinely inspired to communicate what happens um, in the life of the church and in the life of God. Uh, one thing I do find, though, I think you're absolutely right that we carry our fragmentation into even our understanding of the body. Sure. And I have heard, um, you know, conversations about things like church authority or hierarchy in the Christian life. And, you know, there's this appeal to, well, Christ is the head of the body. And so Christ <laughs> is in charge. And Christ, you know, as the head, and they relate it to the brain and kind of the uh, command center of the body. And and I'll hear those kind of metaphors. And initially, you're like, yeah, the brain tells the body what to do. That makes sense. But I'm like, oh, no, you have zero concept of how the body actually functions. I mean, it is this constant give of take relay of information back to the brain. And it's not as if the head or the brain is um, like the (laughs) driving panel, you know, like the control panel of the body. This is a beautifully organic system that God has designed that is in constant give and take biofeedback in all directions. And I do think when we read the metaphor of the body in the scripture, we do in, do tend to import this kind of fragmentation as if the hand and the foot could exist separately from each other, as if the head were just the command center, uh, you know, the microprocessor of the body, and the body just responds like a robot yeah. to whatever commands are sent. Right. And, and I think it's beautiful when you think of Christ relating to the church this way, that Christ is in conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the nature of the incarnation, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, That Christ became human. He became part of the body, as it were, um, and and dwelled in conversation uh, with us in day-to-day presence. Uh, I appreciate uh, those theologians that have reflected on the nature of of the disciples that Jesus had around him and uh, the sort of life together that they shared. Um, just, uh, I mean, of course they did kind of the religious things that we're familiar with, but but they also spent a lot of time just walking and talking together and eating together and mm-hmm. um, just ordinary stuff. I, something that I have um, 
read a couple of articles about, which I will link up in the show notes. I don't have them handy right here. But the research was talking about how crucial it is that we have face-to-face conversation because there's something about that that is enhancing that um, that connectedness between people. And you had mentioned earlier about um, how the modern age, it is causing us to disconnect and and there's something about having face-to-face conversation that research is saying it allows our brains to actually sync up with one another and it is basically the foundation of empathy and unless we have face-to-face eye contact have a conversation we aren't able to enter into somebody else's life and story and to relate to them as a as a human, as someone who has all these other variables going on. And so as we're thinking about the body being interconnected, the only way I can know what the foot is doing when I am a hand is if I actually talk to that person and engage and, and relay the information back and forth. And so this concept that we can... Um, detach from others or avoid conversation, it actually is just perpetuating the problem. Um, how do we encourage people to to have dialogue? Like you said, you opened up dialogue at your church and it caused um, tense conversations that people don't really want to have. So so how can you encourage people to to stick with it and to basically get messy because that's what conversation is. It's not all neat and tidy. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the question. Um, it's messy, but it's also, uh, deeply, deeply joyful. Uh, I mean, I think people are, have a deep longing, uh, to belong, uh, and to know, and, and as part of belonging to know and be known. Um, and I think that, I think that, uh, is probably, uh, at least one of the places that uh, we need to um, to to lean on to invite people uh, into into conversation. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's complicated uh, because conversation is messy and uh, it, it cuts against a lot of um, the the wider, fast modern culture. But but I think that. The reason many people are leaving churches and want very little to do with churches is they they feel that they don't belong, uh, and I think that a lot of people in our churches um, would would relish uh, conversation uh, because they would find in it a sense of of being heard, um, particularly if they are on the margins of what might be considered normal uh, in any particular con- congregation. Um, so I mean I think that uh, really uh, tapping into our, our desires uh, to to be seen, to be heard, to belong, I think those are the inroads uh, into uh, longer practices of conversation. Um, and certainly we could spend a long time talking about uh, how we navigate uh, conflict. You know, the thing that strikes me, though, is even as we make an attempt to enter into conversation with each other, um, we are going to have um, those times where we just flat out don't agree about stuff. And and like you said, you know, some of us exist on the margins within a community precisely because we have differences in our lives and, and maybe the mainstream or within the established 
culture, the differences that are in our lives or even our personalities and giftings kind of push us to the side. So I'm curious about how we overcome that. How do we continue in conversation, continue in that kind of sharing with each other and and in community when these differences are real and profound? Sure, no doubt. I mean, I think one of the things that's been helpful for us uh, is to to make the distinction between disagreement and conflict, um, that we can disagree, uh, but not necessarily be in conflict. Uh, there was a wonderful book that came out um, and within the last couple of years. I think it was just called uh, Virtuous Disagreement. Um, uh, and it was a little bit more academic book, um, but, uh, but I found it really helpful um, uh, to this notion that we can disagree, um, but still stay in conversation with one another and still continue to, to know and be known uh, together. I think that's going back to the image of the body. I think one of the things that's another thing uh, we talked earlier about kind of mutual presence uh, in our bodies uh, and in the Trinity, but another aspect um, of, of our bodies uh, and, and the Trinity is the ways in which diverse parts, and uh, or in the case of the Trinity, diverse persons are united uh, as one. Um, and I, I think that um, it's that commitment uh, to one another, that commitment to stay in conversation, um, even when we don't agree, and to the, the sort of curiosity and open-mindedness um, to, to continue in that conversation and to continue to, to, to know one another and to, to develop some sense of empathy. Um, because largely, I think our convictions uh, take shape out of our experiences, both good and bad. Um, and to, to be able to uh, stay fully committed uh, to one another, um, even, even when we don't agree. I mean, I think it's a product of our fast culture um, that, um, that disagreements so rapidly lead to conflict. Um, we uh, build up all kinds of baggage onto our disagreements um, uh, and all kinds of assumptions about uh, people whose perspectives don't agree with ours. Uh, and that's uh, when we start uh, overflowing from, from disagreement into conflict, I think. I think that distinction is so essential. And part of recognizing the distinction, um, at least in my life, has been having a self-awareness or emotional intelligence for um, how quickly and easily we move to identifying disagreement as conflict. And some of that is uh, related to how you grow up and the communities you've existed in and even trauma you've experienced where if if you experienced conversations for all of your life where disagreement became conflict yeah. instantly, <laughs> we're going to tend to pull back from any scenario where there would be disagreement yep. because in your experience, all it ever was, was conflict. And I see that a lot in the community that I live and work in where there's a lot of, um, you know, just hard lives. I'm in a working class uh, community, Chris, um, in the mountains of Virginia. And there's just a lot of um, trauma that people experience because of the difficulty of life. And so often it's not resolved. And so 
as a coping mechanism, I think we've kind of created this conflict avoidance because in our experience, disagreement always flares up into conflict. And so it is sometimes very hard to gain trust with each other and even enter into conversation. And the thing I'm learning is I have to have the emotional intelligence of my own responses, but I also have to have and emotional intelligence of the situation and realize what we're all carrying into it and be very proactive in setting people at ease. Be very proactive, go out of my way to comfort them, create a space of trust, to assure them of love and to assure them that we can disagree um, and it not turn into conflict. Because in many people's experiences, especially in the church, disagreement erupts into conflict. And so then you have this kind of response of, well, I'm just not going to voice my opinion. I'm not going to say what I'm saying. I'm going to stay away from any kind of conversation that could potentially be disagreement um, because it will, in my experience, end up into this fragmentation and conflict. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And again, this kind of goes back to my my argument that, that churches are the place where we, we learn to do this uh, because at least uh, in theory anyway, um, we have we have some sense that we need to extend one another grace um, and forgiveness because we're going to get it wrong. We're going to uh, step on other people's wounds uh, uh, probably more often uh, than we realize. Um, but but we have to um, we have to be willing to do that and to be able to, to forgive one another when we do, and to to continue on that road, um, and I think that our doing so will teach us a lot about conversations that we need to have in in other settings, uh, in our homes, in our workplaces, um, our neighborhoods. Um, but but I really do think that we are well equipped uh, with theology and well equipped with practices in the Christian tradition that really can move us. Uh, down the road in learning to talk together. Well, Chris, I have so appreciated. I feel like you've you've cast this vision for um, what could be when we are engaged in good conversation and we keep at it. And so I, I'm just so pleased that you were here to talk with us. I know our listeners um, will appreciate hearing from you and we'll we'll make sure that we get all of the links so they can track you down <laughs> and, and uh, maybe start a conversation yeah, with would, you online. Yeah, I would, I would love that. Uh, and thank you for having me. It's, it's a delight. Oh, we're uh, so thrilled you could be to, here. Uh, to be here and to, to to talk about this, and yeah, I hope I hope that you're right. I hope that um, that more churches uh, do get the sense. And I've I've been really fortunate uh, to be able to kind of stumble upon a, a lot of different churches in a lot of different types of places um, that are are learning to talk together. Um, and um, and I'm hopeful that uh, that more churches can be inspired uh, by these stories of, of churches that are learning to talk together. That'd be great. Well, we would love to have um, all of our listeners talking together. Um, and to do that, we'd like to have a question of the day. Hannah, do we have one for our listeners to get chatting? Yes. The question of the day is, when you encounter disagreement 
in an argument? What's your go-to response? How do you handle it? Um, are you prone to eject from the conversation or do you press in and fight? Or are you one of those rare people who have found a way to navigate disagreement in conversations well and you can inform the rest of us how to do it? So the question of the day is, what do you do when you encounter disagreement in a conversation? I can't wait to hear all about that. You can come on out um, to Twitter and chat with us there. We're at Persuasion CAPC, or if you're in the members forum, of course, we can chat it up there as we are wont to do. Yes. Well, we want to thank Jonathan Clausen. He produces all the shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. We so appreciate all the work he does on our show here. You can give all the shows a listen at christandpopculture.com or of course go to iTunes. When you're at iTunes, we would love your ratings and reviews. It helps us to pop up a little bit higher in the search engine so other people can find us and listen in. We do thank all of you for listening to Persuasion and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.